0: good morning as always it's a it's a marvelous blessing for me to be able to look into the living and active word of god with you especially with you with this body this is my extended family Um, we're going to look at a passage this morning that is of tremendous importance Uh, and before we get started i just want to say on the screen up here there'll be some times where you'll just see nothing but a blank blue screen i didn't put I didn't put everything I had to say up here, I put some selected things that I thought would be valuable for you to be able to to see uh, and to see some some portions of the text highlighted. This morning we're examining what I believe to be Jesus' most forceful teaching on the subject of forgiveness, and the importance of what Jesus lays before us here uh, simply cannot be overstated. This is not minor stuff. It's the kind of timeless and eminently practical truth that that defines what our life is supposed to be about. And it makes the difference between a joyful Christian and a miserable Christian. The principle that we find in this passage is not elusive. It is not hard to understand. It's actually simple as dirt, which is pretty much true of all the transforming truths that you'll find in the scriptures. Righteousness is not complicated. Sin is complicated. Righteousness is dirt simple. But this principle is absolutely revolutionary. It is flatly contradictory to the world's way of thinking, and unfortunately, it is contradictory to the way many Christians deal with the issue of forgiveness. In terms of the practical impact of what Jesus is presenting here, it's the difference between relationships that are plagued with resentment, frustration, and anger, and relationships that are richly and deeply blessed and, above all, honoring to God. I want to get one thing out of the way right up front. This is not a passage about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Jesus does speak in very stark terms at the end of this passage about what lies in store for those who violate God's standard of forgiveness. But the passage is addressed to believers, which I'll demonstrate. It's about the standard of forgiveness to which we who belong to Jesus Christ are called. You and I will fall short of this standard. And the one and only reason that we as believers will not bear the punishment that Jesus speaks of at the end of this passage is because he bore it in our place. Having said that, I I want to be very clear that Jesus means every word that he says here. The standard of forgiveness that he sets before us is the standard to which you and I are accountable right here, right now. And his words should convict us, humble us, challenge us, and above all, profoundly change us. So I hope we're all paying attention. Now first, how do I know this passage is addressed to believers? First from the surrounding context, and then from the content of the passage itself. This passage occurs in a a section of the Gospel of Matthew that is, uh, in in which Jesus is actually turned from focusing on the multitudes and the Jewish leaders to His disciples. If you go all the way back to Matthew 16, verse 13, in the passage that we call Peter's Confession, and you go through the end of chapter 18, that entire section, uh, in that entire section, Jesus is directing His attention to His disciples. Uh, The only words that He speaks to anyone other than the disciples in that section are in chapter 17, the words that He speaks uh, in response to the father of a demon-possessed young man, and even that rebuke, O oh, faithless generation, seems to be more directed to the disciples than it is to the father of the young man he was about to heal. In, in this passage, and over and over in this section of, of Matthew, there's one disciple who is particularly in focus in Christ's attention, and that is Peter. Peter. In fact, uh, Jesus talks directly to Peter more times in Matthew than in any other of the Gospels. <clears throat> this passage is in fact Jesus' response to a question posed to him by Peter there's another thing about the context of this uh, of this passage in matthew eighteen twenty one to thirty five that's critically important to understanding that uh, understanding it and that is um, the passage that came just before it if you look just before this in Matthew 18:15 to 19 or 15 to 20 what you see is a passage that is often referred to as the church discipline passage even though the process of addressing sin in the life of a believer starts one on one and it only involves the entire church if the person persists in sin without repentance through a a series of steps that Jesus explains. It is no coincidence that Jesus' most direct and forceful teaching on the subject of forgiveness comes immediately after he has made it clear that sin in the life of a believer must be addressed and that you and I, as fellow believers, are the ones charged to address it. Forgiving sin in a fellow believer does not mean that we turn a blind eye to that sin. We are all charged by God. We are our brother's keepers, and we have the task of addressing persistent sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to ask you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say because I believe that many Christians have this wrong. Forgiveness should not wait for proof of repentance. Forgiveness should not wait for proof of repentance. There are going to be times in which you will be the the person that God intends to use to rebuke and possibly even to initiate discipline against a fellow believer. But that absolutely does not mean you are to withhold forgiveness until you are convinced that there's a change in the offending person and that he has set the sin behind him or her we have this idea that correction of sin and forgiveness of sin are somehow mutually exclusive propositions and that forgiveness can't really occur until correction has taken hold and the sinner has set the sin behind him. I'm convinced that nothing could be further from the truth as presented in scripture and as presented powerfully in this passage we're about to examine. In Luke 23, When Jesus had just been nailed to the cross and he called out to God saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Had the people who nailed him to the cross repented of their grievous sin against the Lord of the universe? I would think not. Beloved, if God waited until you and I had put our sin behind us before he forgave us, we would all be everlasting toast. Turn to Luke chapter 17 for a moment. This is a very interesting passage, uh, two verses, verses 3 and 4. And at first glance, it seems to argue against what I'm saying. Jesus is speaking to his disciples from verse 1, and in verses 3 and 4, he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, that person keeps doing the same thing over and over. If I keep telling him I forgive him, I'm just enabling him. Or worse, if I keep saying I forgive him, I'm I'm letting myself be a, a rug that he's stepping on. She's stepping on Beloved, I don't believe that the point of this passage, of these two verses, is that repentance has to precede forgiveness. I believe the, the, the forceful point of, of Luke 17, 3 and 4 is that you and I are never to withhold our forgiveness and to declare that forgiveness to the one who has sinned against us. If someone comes to you and says to you, I repent of the sin that I just committed half an hour ago, what does this passage say you're supposed to do? Forgive it. God God is not asking you to put that statement of repentance to the test. He's not asking you to find proof before you're willing to forgive. He's saying, his point is, you are to forgive. Forgive. Now, we'll, we'll get deeper into this, and we'll revisit it. Uh, this is a very important issue, uh, so I want to make sure we get the, the, as much of a biblical perspective on it as we can as we go. Now, here's another question. If forgiving sin does not mean ignoring the sin, and it may mean stern rebuke, it may mean even church discipline, how do you know when you've forgiven a sin, especially a sin that's harmed you? It's it's one thing to resolve to forgive a sin and to speak words of forgiveness. But what does real forgiveness look like? Once again, I believe that the biblical answer to that question is actually quite simple. When you forgive a sin committed against you from that point forward, you cease to be concerned about the impact, impact of that sin on you, and your only concern is the impact of that sin on the sinner and on the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the heart of the discipline passage that came just before this one. The rebuke of a fellow believer, even the setting aside or ostracizing of a believer by the whole church is not for the purpose of vengeance. It is not for the purpose of destruction of the sinner. It is for the purpose of restoration of the sinner. It is indeed for the well-being of the sinner and for the exaltation of the name of Christ. If you look at Second Thessalonians chapter 3 for a moment, that's another passage that talks about ostracizing, about setting aside someone who is disobedient. And then, uh, let me get there. Right at the end of 2 Thessalonians 3... Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. Why? So that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The objective of correction, like the objective of forgiveness, is the well-being of the sinner. If you say you've forgiven a sin, yet you continue to dwell on the damage that it caused to you, then you haven't forgiven it. If you have forgiven a sin, then your thoughts and actions and words regarding the person who committed the sin are focused on that person's well-being and restoration, not on your well-being. Joseph, son of Jacob, is a great example of this uh, put into practice. His brothers left him for dead in a hole in the ground because of their seething jealousy and resentment toward him because of his father's favoritism. Before he died in that hole, a couple of them pulled him out and sold him to a band of wandering Midianite traders. Joseph then became a slave to Pharaoh's bodyguard. Then he was falsely accused of messing with the chief bodyguard's wife and was unjustly imprisoned. Then he was elevated by God to be the most powerful man in the greatest kingdom on the earth in that day, the kingdom of Egypt. When his brothers, who had put him in that hole, came many years after looking for food to get them through a terrible famine, they met with Joseph but did not recognize him. They just thought him to be the leader of Egypt. And Joseph had a great opportunity to get even with them. There was probably never a better setup in the history of the world. But he didn't seek to get even. Yes, he gave them a couple of very powerful object lessons to humble them and to make them think. But it was very clear when he revealed his identity to them that he had already forgiven them. When he finally did... Announced his identity, he showed no concern at all for the harm that had been done to him. He said to them, And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler all, over all the land of Egypt. What a great picture of godly forgiveness. The child of God who truly believes that God is the one and only sovereign over his life, who believes in the God who works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that person has no cause ever to be concerned about his own well-being because his well-being is guaranteed by his Father in heaven. You can forgive others of wrong done against you or against those you love because your well-being and their well-being is God's responsibility and God is a a perfect heavenly Father. Now, turn back to Matthew 18. We actually will look at this passage. And look at verses 21 and 22. Right after hearing Jesus explain how Christians are to deal with sin, persistent sin, in the lives of other believers, Peter asked Jesus this question Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? That's a nice godly number, isn't it? Jesus replied, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I know that some of your translations say 77 times. There's been a fair amount of hand-wringing about the exact translation of the Greek here. To avoid a rabbit trail, I'll grant that it could reasonably be translated either 77 times or 70 times seven. It's hard to say both of those, one right after the other. But I am quite convinced that Jesus is saying the latter, 70 times 7, and I believe his choice of words is actually central to the point of the passage. Jesus was speaking to Peter, a Jew, whose own later epistles to the church proved that he had an excellent knowledge of the Old Testament, which at that point were the only scriptures to which anyone had access. And Jesus, of course, being God, knew the Old Testament better than anyone who ever walked the earth. And he knew exactly how to make his point with Peter. I believe his choice of the phrase 70 times 7 was anything but random. And I think this is fascinating. Stay with me and I'll attempt to explain what I'm talking about here. Turn to Leviticus 26. This chapter lays out the blessings... And by the way, you knew I'd have to go to the Old Testament, right? This chapter lays out the blessings that would come upon Israel if they obeyed God's law. And starting with verse 14, the curses that would befall them if they disobeyed God's law. And as always, much more space is devoted to the curses than to the blessings because God is mindful that we are but dust and he knew Israel would spend a lot more time in the curses category. In Leviticus 26, God tells his covenant people that if they persist in rebellion against him, he will drive them out of the promised land by the hand of their enemies and will scatter them among the nations. Then in verses 34 to 35, at the end of of what you see on the board, God explains that the length of their captivity will be determined by the number of Sabbaths the land did not enjoy while they were living on it. In the red there, it says, The land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest which it did not uh, enjoy while you were living on it. Now, what does it mean for the land to keep Sabbath or to to enjoy Sabbaths? If you back up a little bit to... uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I jumped ahead of myself. Go to Second Chronicles 36 and uh, got it up on the slide. At the end of the history of Israel's and Judah's kings, as as the writer of Second Chronicles is wrapping up that narrative, he talks about the exile of Judah in the captivity under the Babylonians. And he refers back to a prophecy from Jeremiah 29.10 in which the prophet foretold that the length of Judah's captivity would be 70 years. The writer of Second Chronicles explains why it's 70 years. And it says, And those who had escaped from the sword, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until seventy years were completed. The duration of Judah's captivity was based on the number of sabbatical years it had not observed. Now, this let's look at the sabbatical year for a minute. The Sabbaths that were to be enjoyed by the land were the sabbatical years. We're all familiar with the Sabbath as the seventh, the the. Uh, the the seventh day of the week. But there was another level of Sabbath called the sabbatical years. One year out of every seven, Israel was to give the land a Sabbath rest, during which they would not plant seed or harvest systematically what had grown in their fields. Instead, in that seventh year, the land was to lie fallow, and everyone, all Israelites, including the poor, the servants, The foreigners in their midst and all the livestock were to be able to freely gather the food they needed from the fields. This was not just free-range chicken. It was free-range everyone. This was to be a gracious exercise assigned by God to his people so that they would learn to trust in him alone as the provider of everything that they needed. They were, in effect, giving up control over the issue of provision for their, for their needs, their physical needs, one year out of every seven. This was the lesson of the manna and of the uh, weekly Sabbath ratcheted up several notches. Instead of merely abstaining for, from labor for one week, uh, one day each week, they were to abstain from planting and harvesting for an entire year every seven years. But it didn't stop there. In the same year, in that sabbatical year, God required that each Israelite was also to forgive all debts owed to him by fellow Israelites. And that's still not all. In Deuteronomy 15, in that same year, once every seven, every Israelite was to give generously to the poor in their midst and to release any Hebrew bond slaves. If you were from a wealthy family and and a poorer family had sold one of, their, one of their family members into bond service to you to pay a debt, in the seventh year, you were to forgive the debt and return the slave to his family. Not only would you return him to his family, but you were to supply him liberally from your own stuff. Now this, by the way brings out a couple of, of motifs or ideas that are in common with the passage, the parable, that Jesus is about to present. One is remission of debt or forgiveness of financial debt and the other is kindness toward slaves. The sabbatical years were designed by God to be a powerful test of Israel's willingness to trust in and depend upon God as their one and only provider. But Israel and Judah failed miserably to trust in God's promise. They couldn't bring themselves to give the issue of provision for their needs over to God at the level that God required in this instruction, so they simply skipped most of the sabbatical years. They just kept on planting and harvesting year after year with no regard for what God had commanded, and they no doubt abstained from forgiving debts, releasing slaves, and making special provision for the poor every seven years. This national failure to observe God's instructions concerning the sabbatical years cost Israel and Judah dearly. If they had obeyed this instruction, the blessing they would have experienced would have been off the charts. But God told them in advance what would happen if they neglected his law and he did precisely what he had foretold. He sent powerful pagan nations to, to invade the promised land and to carry his covenant people away into exile. First, Israel was carted off by the Assyrians under Sennacherib. And then Judah, the southern tribes, were taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. And that happened after Jerusalem was decimated by a one-and-a-half-year siege at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the ruthless Chaldean mercenary army that he had hired, now again, I ask you to, to listen to me if I've lost you or put you to sleep, because I want to try to bring this together. Ju- the length of Judah's captivity in Babylon, according to Jeremiah, and according to the writer of Second Chronicles, was 70 years. The number of years was based on the number of sabbatical years Judah had skipped. Seventy times Judah had failed to observe the sabbatical years once every seven years. Are you with me? Literally, seventy times seven, Judah deprived the land of its Sabbaths. And that's precisely what determined the duration of their captivity in Babylon. Now, God severely punished the sin of his people because they are his people. He told them in Amos 3, two, You alone have I chosen out of all the nations of the earth, therefore I will punish all your iniquities. By the way, that's very similar to what, what is said in Hebrews chapter 12 about legitimate sons of God. And God kept that promise. He chastised them. But did the captivity mean that God had forsaken his people, that he was unwilling to forgive them? Now, the the scriptures emphatically say that is not the case. In Deuteronomy 30, which concludes the section from verse chapter 28 through 30, enumerating in great detail the blessings of the covenant and the curses of the Mosaic covenant, God concludes by explaining that he will not leave Israel under the curse. He disciplined his covenant people as a perfectly faithful father, not to destroy them, but to restore them. And for every prophecy of judgment in the prophets, there is a corresponding prophecy of God's intent to forgive and to eventually restore Israel and Judah and to turn their hearts. God indeed brought Judah back to Jerusalem just as he had repeatedly declared that he would. He worked in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to allow the Judahites to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and to rebuild the temple and the city walls in the 5th century B.C. But that was just the short-term fulfillment of God's promise. One day yet future, God will regather the people of Israel and Judah from the remote parts of the earth, and he will restore them forever to the land that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac and Jacob. Because, as God declared to Moses in Exodus 34, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He is the God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He will not leave sin unpunished, but for those whom he has called to be his covenant people, his own possession, he will forgive, renew, and restore once and for all. All right, why did I take the time to go through all of that Old Testament stuff? Because I like to. (laughs) Now, I, I suspect that some of you have figured this out. You see, when Peter asked Jesus if he should forgive his brother seven times, Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but I say up to 70 times seven. I believe that Peter would have connected the dots and understood Jesus' meaning, you were to forgive as God forgives. The picture Jesus paints by his choice of words even before he presents his parable is powerful and it's absolutely uncompromising. Jesus is saying to Peter and to all of us who are disciples of Christ, you are to forgive as God forgives. And the parable that follows reinforces this understanding. In Jesus' parable, there are two slaves. The first slave, who owed 10,000 talents to his master, was the king's servant. Now, the role of the first, this first servant that's pictured here is that of the chief steward to the king, the highest-ranked slave, who took care of all the important matters under the king's roof. And in a wealthy kingdom, the person in that role would have a whole lot of servants subordinate to him. In Jesus' story, another of those slaves who worked under the authority of the chief steward owed a a much, much lesser debt to that that, uh, chief slave, a hundred denarii. Now, we'll talk about the difference between 10,000 talents and 100 denarii in a moment. But first, uh, I think many of you are familiar with how this story plays out. When the king decides to settle accounts with his slaves, in verse 23, the chief steward is unable to repay the huge debt that he owes to the king. So the king commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had. And the steward threw himself down before the king and begged him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. At that point, the king, knowing that the servant could not repay the debt, felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt, according to verse 27. After receiving this amazing act of forgiveness from his master, the steward went to the other slave who owed him a 100 denarii, and he was merciless. He seized that slave, and he choked him by the neck, and he demanded that he immediately pay every penny of what he owed. And that slave fell down before the chief steward, just as the steward had done before the king, and he made the exact same plea. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Forbear, give me some time and I will make good on my debt to you. But the chief steward was unwilling to forbear with him to allow him time to repay the debt and was most certainly unwilling to forgive the debt. He cast him into prison until he should pay back every bit of what was owed. When the king learned about this state of affairs from some of the fellow slaves, uh, the other slaves who had witnessed it, He rebuked the steward. He brought him into his presence and rebuked him, saying, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? Even as I had mercy on you? Moved with anger, the king then handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. At that point, Jesus moves from the parable back to directly addressing the disciples and he says, so shall my Heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And whatever you do with that warning, it's eminently clear that God takes forgiveness very, very, very seriously. There are a few very important points I want to make sure we don't miss in this parable. First the most obvious, when Jesus speaks of the king throughout his kingdom parables, he's talking about God. And the slaves, that's you and me. Secondly, as Jesus is prone to do, he turned Peter's question on its head. It's amazing how many times Jesus answers a question with a question, or answers a different question than the one that was asked. Peter's question Now listen to me. Peter's question was about how often Peter was required to forgive another human being for sinning against him. But Jesus' answer turns the attention not to what someone else owed to Peter, but to what Peter owes to God. This reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan in in Luke 10, where an expert on the law of Moses comes to Jesus And he correctly identifies the two greatest commandments of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your strength and all your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Good news, huh? Of course, the problem is we can't love either God or man according to God's standard. And that's why we need a Savior. And this man, apparently realizing that What Jesus just told him to do, based on his own words, was not such an easy thing to pull off. So he tries to narrow the scope a little bit. He says, who exactly is my neighbor? And you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. What question does that parable answer? It doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? It answers the question, what kind of neighbor are you? You see, God doesn't intend for us to be focused on any other person's obligation to us. He intends for us to be focused on our obligation to him and what he has done about that obligation. And that clears up a whole lot when it comes to our relationships with other people. Whenever I get the, uh, the privilege of counseling a couple who's, who's working through difficulties in their marriage, the very first thing that I try to drive home with them from Scripture is, husband, focus on your assignment before God and don't give another thought to your wife's assignment before God. Wife, focus on your assignment before God and don't give another thought to your husband's assignment before God. That's God's problem. And if if people do that, it has a revolutionary impact on their marriages. See, Robert nodding. God does not intend for our focus to be on what other people owe to us. Another thing we don't want to miss the difference between the, two, the debts owed by the two men is actually very critical to understanding Jesus' point in the parable. I'm going to put a little math lesson up here. used to love doing these kind of conversions when I was in high school physics. How much was 10,000 talents? By the most conservative accounts, one talent was roughly 34 kilograms of silver or gold. That's about 75 U.S. pounds. So 10,000 talents would be about 750,000 U.S. pounds, or 375 tons. That is a lot of silver. By today's valuations, and assuming this is silver, not gold, we're being very conservative here, based on a price of $17 per troy ounce of silver last time I looked, that's roughly $188 million worth of silver. Now, I got a little laugh because I looked back in my 20-year-old Bible and it had $60 million in the margin. Things have changed. Considering that a day's wages for the working class in Jesus' day was one denarius, considerably less than $1 by today's valuations, We're talking here about a couple of hundred million days' wages, or, converted to years, about 550,000 years' wages. Now, let's look at 100 denarii. The lesser slave owed 100 denarii to the chief steward. That amounts to 100 days' wages, a little over three months. Now, that's a significant debt, but it's definitely a debt that could be paid over a period of time by someone who managed his finances well. Indeed, I'd hazard to say there are some in this room this morning who owe somebody more than three and a half months of their own wages. And that's not the end of the world. It takes some financial self-discipline, and it takes some time to get out of, of that kind of debt. But I seriously doubt there is anyone in this room who owes another person 550,000 years' wages. Am I right? I hope so. But then again, there is someone to whom you and I owe a lot more than that. In fact, half a million years' wages doesn't even put a dent in that debt. If God decided today to settle accounts with you, and he was unwilling to forgive your debt, how long do you suppose you would be handed over to the torturers, to use the picture of punishment presented in this parable, before your debt to him was paid in full? Second Thessalonians chapter one gives us a pretty straightforward answer to that. And I'll, to save time, I'll just go to verse 9 and rip it out of context. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Talking about those who have afflicted, those who belong to Christ, and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his father, of, of his power. How long would it take you to repay your debt if God didn't forgive it? Forever. And by the way, please listen to me. If you cannot accept God's declaration that your debt to him is a debt you can never pay and that you deserve only eternal condemnation, then you will not see the kingdom of God. You cannot say Jesus is my Savior if you don't accept his declaration about what you deserve and what you have been saved from. Another very important thing to note from this parable is that four times in the parable, the other slaves in the story are referred to using the phrase, fellow slaves, with reference to the chief steward. You see, in terms of his relationship to the king, even the top dog among all the slaves is, guess what, a slave. He may have a more authoritative position for a time, but he's still a slave. And slaves didn't have rights. We're all bent out of shape about what our rights are. From God's perspective, you and I are like these, those slaves in the parable. We are in this together. Every last one of us owes an infinite debt to God because of our sin, and it is utter foolishness for me to compare my debt with yours we would all be eternally lost and dead in our sin were it not for the infinite payment made by our sinless Savior when he died on the cross in our place. In that hymn we sang this morning, which has become my favorite, one verse says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. There's a reason that Jesus chose to create such an absurd contrast in this parable between the debt owed by the chief steward to the king and the debt owed by the lesser steward to the chief steward. And that is tied to the reason that Jesus spoke of all the slaves in this story as fellow slaves with one another. Whatever another man owes you amounts to nothing compared with what you owe God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you know that God has placed the infinite, eternal penalty for your debt, for your sin, on Christ. If you know you've been forgiven once and for all for every sin you've ever committed, as well as for the sins you haven't even thought of yet, if you believe Jesus paid your debt to God in full, then I've got a simple question for you. Is there anything any other human being will ever do to you that will make him more indebted to you than you are to God? To put it another way, will anyone ever do anything to you that's worse than you've done to Jesus Christ? It puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Beloved, if there is anyone in your life you are unwilling to forgive, if there's a yeah but in your response when another man's sin is set before you, then it is time for you to fall down in humility before God and reckon with how much you have been forgiven by your king. If you're walking around with festering resentment toward your wife or your husband, toward your parents or your children, toward any other person, then I implore you to acknowledge that God takes forgiveness very, very, very seriously. And you and I had better take it seriously. He poured out the life's blood of his beloved son to pay the debt that you owed to him. A debt you could never pay. And when you refuse to forgive one of your fellow slaves, you might as well be spitting on Jesus Christ. I don't apologize for the forcefulness of those words because I believe my best words can only understate what Jesus is telling us right here. When I use the word you here, I'm talking to myself too. Get over thinking you're better than anyone else. Get overthinking that you could never do anything as terrible as some other person has done to you. Your sin helped nail Jesus Christ to the cross. Get overthinking anyone owes anything to you except eternal condemnation. It's actually very freeing when you figure out where you would stand in God's scheme of things were it not for his amazing grace and clears up all manner of questions about how you you are to deal with your fellow human beings. I hope the young people in this group are listening to what our Lord is presenting in this passage. And all the rest of us as well. One more question we need to pin down. Are there any prerequisites to forgiveness? Is there anything another brother or sister has to do before you are required by God to forgive him? By the way, that's essentially the same question Peter asked that gave rise to this parable. Peter says, what if someone keeps committing the same sin against me? Surely I'm not supposed to have to forgive him without some requirement that he stop doing it. I hope the answer is obvious by now. If God waited until we even so much as had an inkling of the gravity of our sin before he forgave us, we would all be dead forever. When God wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life, had you repented? According to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, you didn't even exist. Neither did the universe. God did not forgive you Because you chose him, he chose you. God requires repentance, but he did not forgive you because you repented. He changed your heart. God requires faith, but he did not forgive you because you believed. He granted you faith because he had resolved in eternity past to make you clean from before the foundations of the world. The undeserved grace of God in Jesus Christ is the one and only basis upon which you stand forgiven. So tell me, what leg do you have to stand on if you are withholding forgiveness from one of your fellow slaves until you conclude that he's fit to forgive? You and I are not God. You can't change another person's heart, and you you really can't even know with certainty when his heart has changed. So don't try to do either. That's God's work, not yours. All you need to know about another person's sin in order for you to forgive it is that Jesus Christ paid the full debt of your sin before you were born. He paid that debt, according to Romans 5, while we were yet sinners and enemies of God. If you're still thinking about what another person has to do to prove his fitness for you to forgive him when you walk out of here today, then the eyes of your heart are in the wrong place. You should be looking at what God and Jesus Christ has done for you. That's exactly what Jesus did with Peter's eyes in this passage. He took them off his brother and put them on his king. We'll close with this passage. It's a simple, straightforward passage, easy to look at and pass over, but it is so powerful. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Ephesians 4 31 and 32. How much? How much? All bitterness all wrath, all anger, all clamor, and all slander. Let them be put away from you, along with all ill intent. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's God's standard in all its simplicity and purity. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The standard of forgiveness to which God holds us is the very standard which he has lavished upon us, though we knew full well the desperate blackness of our hearts. The infinite debt that you owe to your master, your king, has been paid in full. And the one and only thing that you will ever legitimately do with any debt of sin owed to you by a fellow servant of God is to forgive it, without condition and without hesitation. It really is that simple. May we never be satisfied with a lesser standard of forgiveness than that which God has poured out upon us. Loving Father, I pray that anything that I've said this morning that is not of you would be wiped from the minds of my brothers and sisters. But I also pray, Father, that what is of you in this powerful teaching from our Savior about forgiveness would be burned indelibly into our hearts. I pray that we would understand, Lord, that that you have called us to forgive one another as we have been forgiven by you, just as you have called us to love as we have been loved by you and to serve as we have been served by you. We are to, to forgive as we have been forgiven. Father, it it makes things so much clearer when it comes to our relationships with one another. And I pray that we would not lose sight of it. I pray for every marriage here, for every parent-child relationship, for every friendship, that those relationships would be blessed by godly forgiveness so that the name of Jesus Christ Will be honored in all that we do. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.